This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. If we could reconvene in our seats, I know it's that time of the afternoon, so we're at our last event, but, but our most exciting. Um, so for those of you who weren't here this morning or who've since forgotten, I'm Lisa Garcia Bedoya, the chair of the Center for Latino Policy Research here at Berkeley. And it is my immense pleasure to have the opportunity to introduce um, Carlos Azugaray Treto, who was, uh, as you may notice, supposed to be our keynote this morning. And we are thrilled that he is with us. And, and so grateful that he was willing to put up with all of the drama and insanity that was necessary in order for him physically to be here. So the fact that you stuck it out and, and came anyway, we, we appreciate it so very much that you're here. Um, professor Treto is professor at the Center for Hemispheric and United States Studies at the University of Havana. From 1980 to 2007, he was on the faculty of the Instituto Superior de Relaciones Internacionales Raul, Raul Garcia where he served as the ISRI Department Chair and Coordinator for Strategic and International Studies. Since June 2007, he has been professor at the Center for Hemispheric and United States Studies at the University of Havana. Before becoming a full-time scholar in 1996, he spent 35 years as a Foreign Service Officer, being posted at Cuban diplomatic and consular missions in in Japan, Bulgaria, Argentina, Canada, Ethiopia, Kenya, Belgium, and at the United Nations. A member of the Cuban National Committee for the Management for Social Transformations under the auspices of UNESCO, he was a member of the Cuban Center for European Studies, the Center for United States Studies at the University of Havana, and the Institute for Cuban History. He's the author of more than 30 publications on Cuban international relations. So we're going to give um, Professor Sugaray 20 minutes, and then we'll have uh, 15 minutes, hopefully, for, for questions afterwards with the same format of cards as we had before. Please help me, join me in welcoming. My God, yesterday I thought I was not going to make it. I fought at 4.30 in the afternoon, I canceled everything. And then I was with my five-year-old daughter going to the office of Havana Tour, which is close to my house walking and when I was returning my daughter, my son, my mother were doing like this. <laughs> you have to be at six before six at the US intersection and the, and the consul general himself gave me the visa right there in the Balecon. He handed it to me. My son drove me to the airport and then I am here. <laughs> so uh, you Christine has printed the presentation I made when I was not supposed to come. So I changed it. 
over all this time that I have been flying to San Francisco, I have been adding things. So I'm going to read what I wrote. Uh, and please bear, bear with me. Uh, this was designed as a keynote speech in the morning. So some of the things, uh, I'm going to repeat some of the things that people have already said, but I don't know. I hope, hopefully I will say something new. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the University of California at Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies, Institute for the Study of Society, Societal Issues, Center for Latin, Latino Policy Research, and Center for Latin American Studies for the invitation to participate in this important conference on Cuba and California. Sorry, I, I, am, uh, I have slept over two or three hours in the last 24 hours. So I hope I don't make another mistake here and, and erase everything from the computer. But suddenly I was on page three. Oh my God, what I haven't done. Okay. To be here at Berkeley, finally, is practically a dream come true. Little would I have imagined when I embraced my second profession as a teacher that I would have the opportunity that I have been given today and address a conference here in this very well-known university. This university is iconic both for the quality of its teaching and research, but also because of its engagement with the great issues that concern human beings and societies. My appreciation, especially to Professor Christine Trust. What to say, Christine? Huh? We have got, had our ups and downs. It was a roller coaster. Um, your effort to coordinate this has been incredible. But after everything we have gone through, I wonder what your reaction will be if somebody talks to you about organizing another conference with you. <laughs> and my appreciation to Julia. I, I don't know if Julia is here, but Julia is here because we are, we go way long time ago. Even when I was a, a diplomat and, and Julia worked for Wayne at the time. That's many years ago, right? I won't reveal uh, the ages that we are talking about here. <laughs> okay, uh, the organizers have asked me to give an overview of US-Cuban relations and recent reforms, both in Cuba and the US, and comment on the likely implications of these reforms for shaping this binational relationship. Perhaps nothing illustrates more the paradoxical and dysfunctional uh, nature of the present relationship between both our neighborly countries than the fact that two of my colleagues, Professor Soraya Castro, who was in an original program, but she was denied a visa uh, earlier, and our good friend Rafael Hernandez could not come. Rafael was yesterday still waiting for the visa and ready to do this trip, and I would have enjoyed very much to be here with him, uh, that he would have been here, but unfortunately, he never got an answer. For the second time, and this is important that we bear in mind this, for the second time in the last five months, the State Department has deemed inopportune that they visit the US, that's Soraya and Rafael, and join me to do what we like to do best, 
build bridges between our two countries so that the moment when we will have normal relations comes closer. Their visa applications have either been denied or not responded in time. Soraya and Rafael made academic visits to the U.S. in 2011, last year, invited by prestigious universities like St. Thomas in Minnesota, Harvard in Columbia. They usually teach and research at similar higher learning institutions all over the world. They are considered top-notch specialists in their fields. Why would the State Department deny or demur in granting those visas? Is it because 2012 campaign politics in the United States interferes with what otherwise be a mutually beneficial exchange of ideas? Or are we facing the same kind of situation that we faced between 2003 and 2009 that was pointed out in the, in the previous panel uh, when the Bush administration practically stopped all kinds of academic, cultural, scientific, and societal exchanges between Cuba and the United States? And I want to quote the Washington Post. As the Washington Post put it in May, when the State Department denied visa to 10 Cuban scholars, the three of us among them, by the way, things must be put in context. During the Bush administration, no Cuban got a visa to come to a LASA Congress after 2001. The last Congress where Cubans went to, to, uh, to, to the United States, and that was why LASA decided to change the venue of its Congresses to other places. And we had the following Congresses, we had them in, in, uh, in Montreal, Rio, that's that's great. I mean, if the if the price we have to pay for is going to Rio, that's a good idea. Um, but anyway, uh, the Washington Post said this, and I and I quote it: "The rejections send a message that a timorous Washington is somehow afraid of competing points of view from academics in a poor island." nation with a shrinking population and an economy about the size of Arkansas. It's a message that conveys weakness, not strength. Not strength. You draw your own conclusions, of course. But let me tell you something just as the organizers of this conference look at the future of Cuban U.S. ties with realistic optimism and imagination, even though Wayne always reminds us that he has been at it for a long time. And nothing has come of it. Uh, there is a group of Cuban and American scholars who have been, not only us, but this group, working very hard since 2009 to bring about some sense into our relationship. Shortly before the LASA Congress in Rio de Janeiro in June of that year, a number of us met in Sao Paulo under the sponsorship of UNESP, Universidad Estadal de Sao Paulo, Brazil, Promoted by CRIES, the Coordinadora Regional de Investigaciones Económicas y Sociales, a Buenos Aires think tank led by Andrés Servín, Professor Milagros Martínez of Havana University, also denied a visa in April. And Phil Brenner of American University in Washington coordinated this effort at what uh, Milagros coined academic diplomacy, a phrase that she came up with. It was the first of six meetings of what we have designated modestly as Taller Académico Cuba Estados Unidos or Cuban United States Academic Workshop, TASE, for its Spanish initials, 
What we are trying to do once more, and I know Julia, Wayne, and probably some others here have been involved in similar exercises in the past, is to identify areas of conflict and cooperation, making proposals that will promote the latter, that's cooperation, and limit the negative uh, impact of the former. We have already published several joint papers on issues such as terrorism, environmental cooperation, and academic exchanges. Among others, in Pensamento Propio, a quarterly journal published by CRIES. At our last meeting in Havana in January, we drafted a working paper tentatively titled Opportunities in Cuban-United States Relations. A first version of this paper was presented at a session that took place at Brookings Institution in Washington last May 18th by Professor Brenner, Sally Shelton Colby, a former ambassador, a former U.S. ambassador, now at American University, and Jorge Mario Sanchez of Havana University. I was supposed to be there, but didn't get the visa. We hope to present our final findings next year in Washington, if we get the necessary visas for the whole group in a timely fashion. I, I am going to come anyway, okay, because I approved. By the way, last year I, I had the same experience uh, with a conference at the Building Center in New York. Uh, I called the intersection, they said no visa, and as I was drafting the, the email to advise that I wouldn't come, the, the intersection called me and said, your visa is ready, you can pick it up at 11. By three o'clock in the afternoon, I was in a plane, and by eight, I was in New York. So don't try me again, I'll do it again. <laughs> As Robert Cohan has pointed out, scholars should not wait till cooperation happens in order to study it and become players in a confidence building exercise. That is what we are doing. It is great and very rewarding to see that what we're doing points in the same direction that the University of California at Berkeley strives by organizing this conference. Many other US universities and colleges are doing so, like Harvard, Columbia, CUNY, Indiana State, Yale, Tulane, Alabama, North Carolina, or Presbyterian College in South Carolina. Just to mention a few of them, there are many others. So many individuals and institutions cannot be wrong. There are many, any number of reasons why I would like normalization to happen. But one of them, and this I've mentioned because it's a personal question, is very personal and very important. I have a daughter who emigrated to this country, lives and teaches in New York, and became a US citizen last year. Her two sons, my grandsons, one of them studying at Cornell, will soon become citizens in their own right. My daughter should have been here today. She was planning to come, but one of the, her sons fell ill and she couldn't come. And besides the whole problem of not, me not getting the visa, it would have been difficult for her to organize her trip. Uh, sharing with us from her unusual, unusual perspective, a Cuban girl born in 1967 who studied in the Soviet Union, married first an Ukrainian Russian, Russian and later an American, and moved to the US in 2005 after living nine years in Portugal. <laughs> Talking about globalization, right? This fact to me illustrates the point that there is no way that our societies can be separated. We are neighbors and have so much in common. But then again, we are asymmetrical. The US is the greatest superpower in the history of the world. 
Cuba is a small island nation with very meager economic resources, but I want to emphasize that cannot do or intends to do any harm to the United States or its citizens. If this close asymmetric relationship is going to change, certain historical mistakes have to be recognized and dealt with. And I'm going to say here things that Wayne has said, but excuse me if I repeat. In April this year, when President Obama met Latin American and Caribbean presidents and prime ministers at the Cartagena summit of the Americas, they unanimously told him that Cuba must be invited to the next summit in Panama in 2015, or the meeting will be in jeopardy. The American head of state complained, Mr. Obama complained, to journalists in bewilderment that the Latin American and Caribbean demands referred to events that took place long before he was born during the Cold War and that, they, and that he was not responsible for them. Well, all Cubans in their early 50s and younger, and there are more than 7 million of them, have the same situation. They live under a relationship between the United States of which they don't have any guilt or anything of the sort. So they can say the same. But President Obama, by forfeiting on his promise of carrying out a new beginning, after calling out to leave behind the rhetoric of the past, as he stated in April 2009 at the previous summit in Trinidad Tobago, has become the owner of a failed policy. Let me point out a few examples. There are no, no normal diplomatic relations since January 3rd, 1961, Wayne was there and closed the keys to the embassy, because President Eisenhower made the decision to severe them just a few months before the Bay of Pigs invasion, carried out by the Canadian government but designed, planned, and made operative by the CIA under the Republican administration called by political scientists the Hidden Hand Presidency. In March 1989, with the Cold War winding down and after Cuba and the U.S. have participated in the successful negotiations that led to the peace agreements of Southwest Africa signed between Cuba, Angola, and South Africa in December 1988 at the United Nations in New York, Secretary of State James Baker restated the policy in a memo that was leaked to the press, declaring that the U.S. would not negotiate anything that would legitimate or benefit the Cuban government. There are no economic, financial, or trade relations since February 1962. Of course, there's small trade, but that's not important because we cannot sell anything to the United States. Decreed sanctions through a presidential order that took it as its premise the Trading with the Enemy Act, even though Cuba and the United States were not and are not at what international law scholars and U.S. legislation calls a state of war. That policy has turned into the congressional law by Torricelli, by the Torricelli and Hans Burton laws in 1992 and 1996, respectively. Last year, Rafael and I were at the United Nations General Assembly when a Cuban-sponsored resolution reproving the United States blockade of Cuba was approved by a majority of 187 to 2. It was the 21st time the General Assembly passes that resolution, delegation after delegation, including the most important U.S. allies, pointed out the legality of the so-called embargo and, the, and demanded its lifting. I felt sorry. There was a moment when I was feeling sorry for the American delegation because I don't know how they could. Well, they didn't respond. They didn't respond because 
the arguments were so, and, and by so many people. Cuba is in the list of states who sponsors terrorism since 1982. Placed there by the Reagan administration after Havana agreed to a Colombian government request that it help solve a diplomatic hostage case by accepting the kidnappers and their captives in Havana. Today, Cuba is still in the list. One of the arguments used by the State Department to keep it there is that Havana still hosts members of the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, FARC. The Colombian government of President Santos, as has been pointed out, out here today, has recently started negotiations with FARC and recognized the positive roles played by the governments of Norway and Cuba in bringing about the peace conversations. In fact, both countries have been designated by the negotiating partners as guarantors of the peace agreement when they are achieved. Cuba and the United States cooperate in a number of security issues, among them immigration, border safety, and drug trafficking. We can rest assured that neither the Cuban nor the U.S. armed forces and security agencies are in conflict. They cooperate. But the State Department keeps Cuba in the, state, in the list of terrorist states. These examples demonstrate, in my point of view, two things. The first one, that the present state of Cuba-U.S. relations is basically defined by events that happened during the Cold War and has nothing to do with the present world. The response to this situation can best be illustrated by something said by none other than Ron Paul. <laughs> During the debate between him, Mitt Romney, Rick Santorum, and Newt Gingrich, previous to the Florida Republican primary back in January. Guys, the Cold War is over. Let's normalize and trade with Cuba. <laughs> he had it better than the other three candidates, and of course, Mr. Romney. The second one is that most of what defines the relationship has been the product of U.S. decisions taken on the basis of dubious legitimacy, morality, legality, or criteria of efficacy. I'm not going to get involved in the morality, legality, etc. But a clear example of the last point, efficacy, is what has happened in the diplomatic front of this conflict. In the early 60s, the U.S. not only severed diplomatic relations with Cuba, but tried to isolate its government, especially from Latin America and the Caribbean. By 1964, it had apparently succeeded. All hemispheric partners except Canada and Mexico broke off diplomatic relations with Cuba and commercial and trade relations. But things started to change in the 1970s. By the way, by the way uh, the group, one of the group of countries that changed that were the small island nations of the Caribbean who joined the OAS in 1972. We're celebrating their, the 50th anniversary of their independence. And they say, we joined the OAS, but we will establish normal diplomatic relations with Cuba. And they faced down any pressure from the United States to change that. Today, all Latin American and Caribbean countries have normal diplomatic ties with Havana. Invite Cuba to participate in all its summits and insist on Raul Castro's presence in conference with other regions. Cuba participates in the Rio Group, is going to be the venue of the third summit of the newly formed uh, Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, CELAC, in 2004, and joins the summits with European Union and with Spain and Portugal in the Ibero-American negotiating process. Cuban containment has not worked.
the same month that the United States refused to accept Cuba, the Cuban presence at the summit of the Americas in Cartagena, Colombia, in April this year, Havana was visited by Pope Benedict XVI, the President of Mexico, and the President of Vietnam. An additional fact, I don't know if Mark is still here, but as we stand today, one million Canadians come to Cuba every year, turning that country into the first origin of all tourism coming to the island. By the way, the second one now is the UK, two close allies of the United States. Ottawa has become the second foreign investor in Cuba by the number of, of initiatives, probably is the biggest in terms of actual investment, and is Cuba's fourth trading partner. Who or what is isolated? Cuba or US policy of non-recognition of the legitimacy of the Cuban government? What is the position of the Cuban government on the issue? A disposition to negotiate with the United States all outstanding issues and talk with the United States on all subjects that Washington wants to talk to Havana, human rights, democracy, political prisoners. As simple as that. No preconditions. And in this, in this they have the support of the majority of the Cuban people. The adversaries of present, present US policy, a very small minor, minority by any account, use any number of arguments to stop engagement between Cuba and between the Cuban and US governments. They preferred, their preferred one is the terrorist state argument. You do not negotiate with terrorists, they say. And Cuba is a state that sponsors terrorism according to the State Department. Even though there is no shred of evidence to prove it, if you want to check it out, go to the Department of State report. If Cuba had something like a list of states that sponsor terrorism, it would have no problem and much evidence to put the United States on that list, <laughs> including the fact that Luis Posada Carriles, better known as the Latin American Bin Laden, the person who has committed and confessed carrying out terrorist attacks against Cuba, even inside Cuban territory and outside Cuban territory, lives freely in Miami, in Miami where he's the object of tribute by the right-wing Cuban-Americans organizations and even some institutions like the University of Miami. The refusal to treat Cuba as any, gov as any other government can be negative for U.S. interests. When Cuba decided to offer the possibility of exploring for oil and gas in its exclusive zone in the Gulf of Mexico to foreign companies, it was a sovereign decision which could not be hindered. The adversaries of normalization and supporters of present policy argued that the U.S. government should try to deter such an initiative, and failing that, avoid any cooperation or negotiation with Cuba on the subject, even though it is obvious that non-cooperation on this would preclude any benefit accruing from any gas or oil discovery, not to speak of the risks in case of an accidental oil spill. The U.S. has satisfactory cooperation agreements with other neighborly countries like Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Why not with Cuba? The adversaries of normal cooperation have partly succeeded. The U.S. has accepted to participate only in multilateral cooperation talks with Cuba, not bilateral, which would undoubtedly be the necessary complement. On another case, the arrest and conviction in Havana 
of Alan Gross, an American citizen hired by the US, U.S. Agency for International Development through a third party to bring into Cuba communications equipment and an activity plainly illegal under Cuban law has become a major dispute going, disputing point. The Cuban government has unmistakably stated that it is ready to consider the issue in government-to-government -government negotiations. The U.S. State Department has refused even to talk to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Havana to discuss the subject, probably because it dreads that the Cuban side would place a similar request on the table related to, the, to its five citizens arrested and convicted in the United States for carrying out surveillance of terrorist cells in Miami. The same year, these Cuban agents were arrested, a series of bombs exploded in Havana, of course, by people hired by Posada Carriles, one of them killing a young Italian tourist. This is an issue, the liberation of Alan Gross and the Cuban Five, which requires urgent government-to-government -government negotiations for humanitarian reasons. Havana wants to talk about it, Washington does not. Whatever these men have done, they have already paid, and the suffering of their families should be stopped. It can be argued that by both sides that the six of them were doing their duty as they interpreted. You cannot convict governments, of course, but you can do something about these people. My final comment has to do with the change that is taking place in Cuba since Raul Castro launched its updating of the economic model. Cuba has entered a new stage in its search for a future of dignity and prosperity for all Cubans. The challenges that the Cuban leadership faces are huge. They do not have much time. At times, it seems that the government is not doing enough. A similar situation happens in the United States with the change promised by President Obama. I was reading recently a book by Michael Grunwald titled A New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. It reminded me very much of what is happening in Cuba. Sometimes when we are in the middle of changes, we don't see them. We have to take a step backwards and look at the, picture, at the big picture. The big picture in Cuba can be summarized as follows. The updating of the economic model is much more than that. It is a profound reform of Cuban economics and politics. I think that Rafael's presentation which I think was shown in video, demonstrate that point. It is gradual but relentless. It hasn't stopped. At times it seems very slow, but it has not been stopped, much less reversed. In the defense of the Cuban government, it can be said that the argument that things have to be thought out well without improvisation is a reasonable one. There is no room for mistakes. Change is going on in basically in two directions. The first and most important is making the Cuban economy more efficient in order to sustain its independence and its social achievements. To do that, in the world of today, you have to broaden the space for market forces to operate, as the Chinese and Vietnamese governments have done. This is what Cuba is doing. It is calculated that in the few years, 45% of Cuba's labor force will be in the non-state or private sector. That means small and medium-sized enterprises, cooperatives, self-employment. The second one is political. It means the democratization of the system and the opening up of public spaces for deliberation. Several public intellectuals, Rafael, like Rafael and me, are involved in this difficult process. It is not easy, no es fácil. 
as Cubans usually say. But we are confident that the Cuba that will emerge will be more democratic, more decentralized, more autonomous, and more just. Hopefully, it will also be more prosperous without giving up stability. What does this mean to the future of Cuba and U.S. relations? It means that there will be more spaces for cooperation and dialogue, and both governments and civil societies must take advantage of them. Washington is having a negative influence in this process by doing what it has always done with Cuba, what, what it has always done with Cuba with negative results, intervening by backing minority groups that do not represent anyone but themselves. The United States can be a bona fide external player, as is Canada, for example, but it has to change its policy towards Cuba and treat its government, its people, its society with respect. Paradoxically, the U.S. government might achieve what it proclaims, that the Cuban people decide freely in which direction they want their country to go by refusing to intervene or interfere. If one million Canadian tourists have made their country one of the most popular in Cuba, what could five million American visitors do? Of course, I know there are here people who fear that that would have a negative impact. I think no. I think that, that what has happened with the tourism from Canada, the UK, other uh, developed countries is very positive for Cuban society. The freedom of Americans to travel to Cuba jeopardizes the arguments put forth by the adversaries of normalization because once the visitors come to our island and the previous panel, that argument has been done, they find that the narrative of the Cuban inferno, so much peddled from certain quarters in Florida, does not fit the reality on the ground. Cuba is not the paradise that its government proclaims at times, but it's neither the hell described by certain media outlets. As a Cuban who respects everything that is positive in the U.S. but does not want to return to the situation of subordination we had before 1959, I look forward to a normalization of relations which will not mean an absence of conflict. In order to achieve this, we have to do what is most difficult, change the mentality, change the negative discourse, as President Obama suggested in April 2009. The narratives of our relations, part of it based in true facts, need to be overhauled both in the U.S. and Cuba so that confidence building must take place. This can only happen if our societies become more open towards each other on the basis of mutual respect to what we have achieved. That is what I am betting on. That is what I am working on. Thank you. So you said, quote, Cuba does not have much time, unquote. Why? What will happen if too much time passes? We, we can face uh, very difficult moments. Um, the Cuban people have sacrificed a lot over the years. And unfortunately, because of, not only because of the embargo, but because of mistakes that we have made, have produced not the results that we expected. This is, this is, of course, a question of debate. But obviously, uh, we cannot count on the fact that the economic and social situation doesn't get better and there isn't any prosperity. Jose Martí said 
in his famous quoted phrase that the only way to be free is to be educated or to be uh, uh, to have a culture that the only way to be good is to be prosperous. What is eating Cuban society right now, and this has been pointed out by many of our colleagues in Cuba, like Esteban Morales, for example, or Rafael, is corruption. Corruption can become a very bad thing if we don't change the situation in the way in which we abide what, by what Marx said, from each according to its capacity to each according to his work. We still have too many people who don't work sufficiently, don't work what they do, they do things on the side. And that situation is not caused only by the blockade, but by, uh, let's say, views about the development of economics in Cuba that have proved that they don't work. So what changes, if any, have you seen between the Bush and Obama administrations concerning uh, US policy towards Cuba? And if you wouldn't mind providing some of concrete examples, um, and what changes, if any, do you expect from a second Obama administration? Uh, the changes are very marginal. Um, Obama has only changed things that helped him in the, uh, in the elections of 2008, the question of remittances and travel of Cuban Americans to Cuba, something that they maintain. And of course, uh, it's very interesting because when Mitt Romney was trying to get the Cuban-American support uh, before the Florida primary back in January, he published in his web page that he was going to go back to Bush policies. Um, when there was this big problem about the Republican platform not having a paragraph on Cuba, they took something from there, but not the prohibition of travel. Uh, obviously, it's not a popular thing to do. So I think Obama changed, changed the rhetoric. Obviously, some of the worst aspects of the Bush administration, like the commission to help a free Cuba, the coordinator for Cuban transition, uh, the level of the discourse. If you look, for example, at the Democratic Party platform, it, it, it doesn't use the worst possible terms to describe Cuba. So this is a change. This is a change, which I consider that it's not, it's not fundamental, but it's not unimportant. Then opening up to travel and remittances. Going back in part to um, American travel and the people to people, now they, they classify it purposeful travel. Uh, of course, when you, when you talk about purposeful travel, you are using travel for um, subversion purposes. Uh, subversion uh, purposes. That's clear. That's obviously from the Cuban side, the Cuban government and, the, and us Cubans who work with this, we are very clear. But we think that this can be used in uh, the favor of Cuba. Every time an American group travels to Cuba and faces the reality of Cuba, they return uh, changed to a great extent as it has been pointed out. So these changes have taken place. But Obama hasn't changed the embargo. To the contrary, there are elements that indicate that the embargo has been, and the blockade has been applied and implemented strong, more strongly with Obama. 
uh, he hasn't taken the step that he could have taken, for example, of getting Cuba out of the terrorism list, which is something that does, does not depend on Congress. It's basically a State Department, an executive decision. And they have enough arguments to do it. They have a new argument now, which is the Colombian announcement. They can do that. Uh, they haven't done that. Uh, what will Obama do if he gets reelected? Well, my view, as a specialist who follows American politics in Cuba, um, I think it's, go it's going to be interesting. I think if Obama gets reelected, he can count on something that, in, and he can count with the political capital of having made a comeback. And he can use it to good purpose. Will he? That's very difficult to answer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advance uh, 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 any scenario. Uh, hopefully, he would do something. He can do something with Cuba. I don't think it's, it's very difficult to do the terrorism thing or say, listen, the Latin American countries want Cuba back into, into the summit. And I have no other option but to accept that because I am going to put in jeopardy something that is important for the United States. So he can have those arguments, but will he use them? Is he well advised on Cuba? Sometimes he says things that don't seem that he is well advised. But uh, I think what, but, but I think the reality of the relationship is going to be decided in Cuba. The reform process should bear fruit. And as it bears fruit, it will push, again, away this idea that somehow Cuba is going to crumble, that the regime is finally going to fall down, to use the words that are usually used. And by the way, it seems that some people inside the national security apparatus tend to think that way, even though that obviously they have been proven wrong again and again and again. But what to do is very difficult uh, when you have such a situation that people change their minds. Uh, but I think that what Cuba must do is what it is doing. And that would inevitably have an impact on, on the policy, be Obama or Romney. And I think that as things stand right now, it's probably Obama. And, and, and of course, with Romney, nothing. We cannot expect anything from Romney. That's obvious. So I think you, you actually touched on this question a little, but I don't know if you want to elaborate more. Um, we all agree, or at least, let's say most of us probably in this room agree, that the United States should change its policy towards Cuba. What should Cuba do more than it has done to facilitate this change? What, what I said. What I said. What I said. Um, this idea that somehow there should be tit for tat or something, it's impossible. Because when you analyze all that exists in the Cuban-U.S. relation, as I pointed out, everything comes from an initiative from the United States with no response from Cuba. And the main issues, as Wayne has pointed out before, the main issues that existed in the 80s, alliance with the Soviet Union, Cuban presence in Africa, support of Central American revolutions, that doesn't exist. The moving of the signposts. So, um, my recommendation, and I have written about this, is be able to tell the U.S., I don't care if you leave the embargo or not, because I am doing very well. That should be uh, the main policy aim 
of, uh, of the Cuban government. Just ignore it and try to uh, make our economy more efficient with oil or without oil. And with that, I have been signaled that we are out of time, so please join me in thanking Professor Fidelai. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.